You can't ever stop learning and casting your net wider and trying to understand the world around you because it's getting more and more challenging to do so with disinformation, fake news, all the things out there that prevent people from truly understanding the world around them instead of taking the simple path of believing what somebody told them. It's time once again to learn from the past and explore the future. Welcome to the Leadership Frontiers podcast with your hosts, Tara O'Brien and myself, Ron Duren Jr., In compelling discussions, we'll dig deep into leadership topics within business, education, nonprofits, the public sector, social justice, and wherever we may find it. This is brought to you by the University of Colorado Boulder's Center for Leadership. Thank you for joining us. Major General William Mullen was commissioned via the Navy ROTC program at Marquette University in 1986. During his career, he was deployed to Operation Desert Shield. In 1999, Mullen was selected to be the Marine aide to the president. He deployed to Fallujah, Iraq from 2005 to 2006. He retired from his distinguished career in the United States Marine Corps in October of 2020. He holds a BA and MA in political science, both from Marquette University, and an MA in national security and strategic studies from the Naval War College. Today, we discuss leaders as learners, the value of experiential learning, politics and the military, and of course, his impressive personal book collection. I think you're gonna enjoy this discussion with Bill. Let's get to it. All right, welcome to the Leadership Frontiers podcast. This is gonna be exciting. Thank you for being here, Bill. You know, it's fun when I look at all the guests that that we bring on the show and of course, as a good host, I'm doing my homework, right? I'm doing some research. And I, I looked at your resume and I said, holy moly, this guy, you know, this is, this is impressive, Bill. What, what inspired you to, I mean, much of it, if not all of it, is, is in the military. What inspired you to join the military in the first place? Yeah, um, I've always been a big history buff, read a lot about history from even when I was a kid. Um, and when I started reading about the military and what it does, warts and all, um, I started thinking to myself, you know, that's something I could really bite into. And then um, I realized which of the different services does which, and I really was attracted to the Marine Corps. And then as a typical teenager, you know, my parents kept saying, nope, nope, there's no way you're going to the Marine Corps, you're not doing it, which of course means that's exactly what I'm going to do. Um, and then they made the mistake of telling me, it's like, look, if you want to go to college, you need to find a way to pay for it. Uh, And so I said, I can do that. I went and talked to the Marine Corps and got a scholarship from them. Um, And while I would never say that my intention for the first maybe 10 to 15 years of my time in the Marine Corps, did I ever intend to go as far as I did? Um, Because you can never really count on that. Um, I just really liked what I was doing. They kept giving me really good jobs. Um, I really liked the people I was working with, uh, my fellow Marines and sailors, uh, because we have our medical and religious personnel from the Navy. Um, and you know, how many careers can you say after you spend 34 years in it that I'd do it all over again without a second thought? That's a good testament, right? Uh, yeah. I think all of us would like to say that uh, when we take a path in life and say, "Yeah, no regrets. I'd do it all over again." My dad was in the Marines, and so you said nice. you gravitated toward the Marines. What, what was it about the Marines that you liked? 
I think it kind of goes into maybe the advertising that we've always done because we've always offered it as more of a challenge. Um, maybe you can be one of us. Yeah. Um, that was very prominent when I was young uh, and that and the poster of a drill instructor in somebody's face going, hey, we never promised you a rose garden. I remember those very specifically. And just that challenge really struck me. And then between my junior and senior year of high school, I attended Boys State in the state of Pennsylvania. And some of the junior councils of which I was one were Marines. Um, and uh, they'd already, they'd just gone through officer candidate school and the way they carried themselves, the way they talked about things, the camaraderie they had, um, that was icing on the cake. I'm like, I, I want to do that. Yeah. I say, uh, you know, you might be going back a little further than what I remember from the marketing campaign of the, of the Marines. The ones I remember is the few, the proud, right. Yes. The Marines. And so it always has that little bit of that elite air to it. And so uh, that's pretty cool. And then, you know, the dress blues, uh, I don't know. It's, it's a pretty cool uniform. That does attract I, a lot of people. Yes. <laughs> I, I think that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, well, good. So in during this, you know, this impressive resume that, that I'm talking about here, you had the opportunity to work alongside actually two presidents, uh, one Democrat and one Republican, President Clinton and uh, President George Walker Bush. Um, what was it like to work alongside uh, the leaders of the free world. Yeah, well, it was a very strange experience because it's not something you ever expect to do. And then a friend of mine told me about it. So I threw my hat in the ring. They picked me to interview. Um, you interview with uh, the other serving military aides in the White House military office. You get picked for the job, you're put on the job. Day one, they're walking you around and the people you see in the news all the time are walking around you too. And you're just kind of like one of these numbers. Oh my God, looking around. Um, and it's almost like once in a lifetime experiences on, on a daily basis. It was just bizarre. And of course, you know, uh, seeing all the pressures and all the things the presidents have to deal with, um, you know, President Clinton, incredibly intelligent guy, um, very charismatic. Um, President Bush, uh, contrary to what many think, was also a very intelligent guy, but not as charismatic, um, didn't speak as well. Um, but both of them genuinely cared uh, for what they were doing, uh, the job that they were doing. They had a good group of people around them who really believed in what they were doing. Um, and it was just a neat experience and something you never figured you'd do, especially, you know, landing on the South Lawn and in the in Marine One, you never get used to that because you fly by the Washington Monument and you land on the South Lawn and you're like, I, I, I don't believe that. So. <laughs> so you became one of those famous people on the news. Nice. I wouldn't say famous. I, I, one of those people off to the side that seems really sure, sure, sure. A running joke that if you actually got seen and on the news, you owed everybody a six pack of beer. So. Ah, nice, <laughs> nice. You know, I, I like that you say that. You know, especially during the, these modern times, that you hear a lot of people say, "Well, that's not my president. I didn't vote for for him." And uh, I, I like that you're saying, you know what? They again, you work for a Democrat and a Republican. And they were doing the best they could. Yes. Um, and, and what they believed in was this country. And I, I feel like we're losing that. I mean, do you have a sense that we need to get back to this idea that, yeah, we may not agree with every policy, but I know your heart's in the right place and you care about this country and you're doing the best you can with what you got. Is, do you feel like, am I the only one that feels like we've no. lost that? I think that would be a very good place to start as a baseline assumption. Unfortunately, you meet very few people that actually do that. And then the other thing that we seem to have lost the talent for is listening, truly listening to what somebody else has to say, even though it may run counter to what you're thinking or what you believe. Mm. You got to assume that, first of all, they're 
they know what they're talking about. Uh, and second of all, they have something meaningful to say. Um, and you learn a heck of a lot more by listening than you do by speaking. And maybe it was the news media that, you know, where you get the big arguments going on and nobody seems to be listening to each other. They're interrupting each other. It drives me crazy to the point where I don't even watch them anymore. Um, I just, you know, politics is the art of compromise. That compromise being a very important piece. Nobody gets what they want all the time. You've got to be able to compromise. And we do seem to have lost that. that that's funny because I'm a, I'm a coach in my, my part-time. I do a little bit of leadership coaching. And, and that's a common thing for leaders. When I'm coaching leaders is we talk about this idea of listen more and talk less. So I think it's a, such a powerful message yes. for all of us leaders. And so let's, let's stay with this idea of leadership. Yeah. It seems like a lot of your background is in education and leadership. Yeah. Um, is it fair? I mean, why is that? Do you, that's a, I assume you agree that's a fair assessment. And why yeah. do you think you've gravitated toward education and leadership? Probably because it's something I feel very strongly about. Um, my first job as a general officer, uh, I was put in charge of Marine Corps University, which is all this, the professional military education schools for the entire Marine Corps, uh, of which you know, we have them all the way from the colonel level all the way down to the lowest enlisted levels. Um, in trying to get them to be smarter, to be better at being Marines, uh, to be more professional. And I just have an affinity for it. Uh, I've written about, written articles about it. Um, and many people, when I got into the job, like, wow, that's, you're just the perfect fit for it. Uh, and it, it's kind of continued along that theme. Uh, I even, I think the last five, six years of my career, I was actually lecturing, um, leading discussions, I think was a better way of putting it, about why people need to be more professional. They need to learn, be lifelong learners, the importance of education, expanding our horizons, casting a wider net. Um, and when you see the light bulb come on from folks about the value of reading, the value of education, and they just start getting after it intrinsically, it's just very heartwarming to watch. You think that's foundational to being a good leader. Do you need to be a student of history? Do you need to read books to be good at leadership, you think? Well, I think it helps you understand what's going on around you much better. Um, it doesn't, as I've often said, it doesn't give you answers, but it helps you come up with answers much more readily. You make those connections in your brain, sometimes unconsciously, uh, about things you've read about, especially if you read widely. Um, and you know, one of my uh, role models is uh, Secretary Mattis, and he always talked about the 5,000-year-old mind. How do you take advantage of all the mistakes and things people have done well over the last 5,000 years? Well, you, you read. It's all vicarious experience. And hopefully it prevents you from making the same sort of mistakes, mm. benefiting from the good things that they've done and using those things to make yourself better. So I think it does help. Yes. So you're saying we can learn some things from those, I don't know, those old, old maybe old guys, old gals um, that, that are applicable to our modern world, right? I think a lot of people miss the connection that uh, we like to think we have brand new problems. And I, I think you would agree. They're not brand new, are they? Now, did you ever hear the old the quote that if you want a new idea, uh, read an old book? No, I have not, but I study stoicism a fair amount, and and even a little bit of and even a little bit of Buddhism, and mm -hmm. and I always am, I'm amazed that 2,500 years ago they got a lot of things right, and it, yeah, so and, and we're struggling with a lot of the same stuff now. And, Absolutely. Because human nature oh, okay. hasn't really changed all that much. Yeah. So you're dealing with a lot of the same issues. And I'm a big, you know, Stoicism fan. Um, actually, the Stoic philosophy, which is different from Stoicism. Um, and I, I'm 
you know, a lot of people don't understand it, but one of the best books I've ever read was by uh, James Bond Stockdale, um, Vice Admiral Stockdale, um, Thoughts of a Philosophical Fighter Pilot, because he studied philosophy before he went to Vietnam, was shot down, was a prisoner of war for seven years. He said, that's, that's what got me through. Yeah, yeah. I've read that book, Epictetus. Epictetus yeah. got him through. And uh, yeah. sometimes I share some of those stories with my students as a great example of, of how powerful stoicism can be. But also, you know, there's a lot of things that come out of, of that. The Stockdale paradox and, yes. you know, this idea of grounded, what I like to call grounded optimism. So, you know, a wonderful person to look to for some good lessons was uh, Admiral Stockdale. We're on this this topic of books, and I love books. I have this weird thing. When I get a new book, you know what I do, Bill? I, I take that book and I fan the pages. The, the smell of the pages of a brand new book is is something I really enjoy. So you're so reading I'm, purist, and you probably don't read on an e-reader, do you? I, I You know what? I've tried to force myself, and I can't. I, I like the old-fashioned you know, book and pages. And uh, I always wonder, are our libraries going to become like a museum? You know, I, I, or bookstores, you know, is, is yeah. everybody going to go digital at some point in the future? And that will be a sad day for me because I do enjoy the book and holding it in my hands. You very much uh, probably would, would be on the same page because you've got an amazing book list from what I hear. 2,700 volumes. Is that right? Yeah, I could send it to you if you would. It's an Excel spreadsheet. Um, wow. And I keep track of it for two reasons. One, there are too many good books out there to read a book twice, though I have on occasion. Uh, and the second thing is to be able to recommend good books to people in different topics. So that's why I maintain it. So. Oh, wow. And I'm hoping one day I can, I can reach that. Cause I always say I need a bigger room for my library. <laughs> you know, I get this question a lot and maybe it's, it's hard to answer. I don't know if you're a parent, I'm not a parent, but it, it feels like it's almost like saying, what's your, who's your favorite child? You know? So I, people say, what's your favorite book, Ron? So I would say, Bill, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you that hard question. What's your favorite book? By the way, I just became a grandparent. My wife and I just became wow. a Congratulations. One of our twin daughters had twins. So yeah, we're pretty happy about that. Nice. Um, but I'm a big fan of historical fiction uh, because it tells a story. Most of it's pretty accurate. Um, and probably one of the, the most impactful books in my life has been Once an Eagle by Anton Meyer, because mm. um, I've always tried to be the main character, Sam Damon, um, the way he approached his duties, professionalism, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, one of my battalion commanders when I was company commander was uh, at the time Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Dunford, who became subsequently chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And when I was leaving the unit that he was in command of, uh, I donated a copy of Once an Eagle to the unit library. And he's like, oh, I know why you like this book. You're Sam Damon. And I'm like, well, that's one of the best compliments I've ever gotten. I strive to be Sam Damon. I'm not him. But, um, but that's why I like the book so much. It really resonated with me. I'm gonna have to put that on my list. I've not read that one, but um, I'm intrigued already. Oh, all right, <laughs> <laughs> that is not for amateurs. How what, you know? What do you think about this idea of, especially for young leaders? Should we should we pick out a leader leader that we admire and should we emulate them? Should we try to be like them? I guess the way I look at it is, you know, if that's what gets you studying history then good. I'm all about that. But you can only be yourself. Um, and if you try to be someone else, um, people are going to be able to pick that out very quickly. But that doesn't mean you can't pick up pieces and parts of other things that you admire. I like to tell people I keep a mental notebook in my head of both good and bad. Like when something bad happens, I see a leader do something I don't like. I remember I think to myself, I will never do that. Mm. Same thing on the good side. Wow. 
How did that make me feel? Well, that was fantastic. I can remember to do that, like writing notes to people. Um, when I was a, a lieutenant, I had a colonel write me a note. Hey, good job on that, this, that, or the other. And I'm like, wow, what a great practice. So I picked that up and I, I used that throughout my career. And, and it takes you a minute, two minutes to write a note. And I, I've never seen it amazing how impactful that was for people. So that, that's just one example. There are many others. Yeah. So I, I'm, if I'm paraphrasing this, so, you know, pick and choose, you know, things from, from people that you like and, and, and make it yours. Right. Um, yes. It's gotta be you. So, all right. So you read all these books. Uh, that's great. You got a great library. Uh, you've also co-written a book, Volusia Redux. Am I saying that right? Yes. Tell me about that book. Why did you write it and what's it about? Well, my co-author, Dan Green and I, um, I had served a year in Fallujah as an operations officer regiment. I came back, was uh, assigned to command a battalion that was returning and essentially was mayor of Fallujah for most of 2007. And during that second tour, my co-author was there with me um, and he had come over there for a different reason. And the people he was working with kind of shunted him aside. So he came to me and said, hey, would you mind if, can I work with you? Uh, he was a Navy reservist. And um, I said, absolutely. And we came up with a div uh, division of labor. He kind of took the mayor and the city council uh, under his wing and tried to coach him and mentor him and try and uh, move him along while I focused on security for the city. But during that deployment, a lot of, you know, a lot of Marines who had served in the city and gotten grievously wounded, um, they or their families would write, you know, to us and like, hey, was it all worth it? What's going on there in Fallujah? Um, and the book came out in 2014 when ISIS was starting to roll. And really, it was our answer to a lot of folks who were asking, hey, was this worth it? And it was like, well, absolutely it was. Um, because what I believe is um, we experienced a lot of success on the ground eventually. It took us a while to figure it out, unfortunately. But we had a lot of success on the ground, uh, in particular in Fallujah, where at the beginning of our deployment as a battalion, um, the first five weeks were very violent. And because of specific things that we did and some other things that fortuitously were going on at the same time, everything turned around to the point where the battalion that took over for us was organizing soccer matches, running or bicycle races, uh, had a police parade right down the middle of the city. Um, and then 2009, I think by 2009, there were no mil US military forces left in the city. Um, and that's how things were turned over. Uh, by 2011, we got to the point where we were way, way in the backseat uh, and the Iraqis were in charge. Um, and then unfortunately when we left, Maliki, was very much of a Shia, um, but he he started marginalizing the Sunni pretty badly. You can't blame him based on the history of this, the country there. I always tell people they needed a Nelson Mandela and they didn't get that. Because mm. Nelson Mandela brought everybody together, even though despite, you know, terrible past um, and they didn't get it. And I think when the Sunnis got marginalized, ISIS was like, hey, we'll be your heroes. And at first they welcomed them in because when I went back my third tour, uh, I was dealing with the Iraqi government trying to help them take their country back from ISIS. And a lot of the Sunnis we talked to were like, wow, that was that was a mistake. We never should have let them in. They were they were horrible. You know, we thought Al-Qaeda was bad. These guys were worse. So it was it was an ex it was kind of helping people understand that, you know, in the in with all the rhetoric out there that we lost, we, you know, we didn't do anything right. Actually, we did. Uh, we did in quite a few places, but a lot of that was wasn't ever really covered. Do you feel like you know, I don't have a military background, but I, I wonder if you feel frustrated by, you know, some of these, when you hear things like that, 
you know, that, that, that somehow that was a failure. Um, is that, does that frustrate you? And certainly we're not, we're not talking about, and I don't think that we're maybe ever going to see this again. This is not world war two, right. Where right. it's just this definitive, all right, we won, they lost and it's nice and, and clean and, and, and we can see yeah. this. We haven't had these this yeah, modern wars are not going to be fought that way. And so do you feel like when you go over there and do this kind of work and you don't come back with this definitive, we won, does that bother you? Uh, to a degree, you know, part of it, because I've, I've, you know, I've, I've done a couple, I've made a couple trips to Afghanistan. I never fu- did a full combat tour there, but I did a couple trips there to see how things were going. But you talk to folks and one of the questions, you know, because when they start expressing frustration about how things turned out, the question I ask them is, okay, when you were over there, did you do the best job you possibly could? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Okay. What more could you have done? Well, nothing. Okay. And could you have affected the outcome the way it happened? No. Well, then it doesn't really do you much good to get all frustrated about it. It, it actually does, is pretty negative on your health and everything else. Go back to the stoic philosophy of, could we have affected anything? You know, when you were given the opportunity, you did the best you could. And that's all you can ask. That's all you can do, you know? Yeah, control the controllables, right? Uh, it's, <laughs> it's what you hear a lot with stoicism. And and I think that, uh, you know, service members that are going into uh, any of the services now, I think they, they just need to look at this a little bit differently. Maybe they do already. Maybe they're trained that in all the academies. I would hope they are. Um, that it's just a little different. Uh, yeah. we, we've got to let go of this idea that it's going to be, uh, you know, like a World War II kind of a thing. Do the best you can with what you have. What, uh, you know, a lot of this, again, well, before I get to that, let me let me ask you a loaded, not maybe not a loaded question, but uh, maybe a hotspot question what do you think of uh the exit from afghanistan uh what i think was that uh it was handled very poorly um whose fault it is everybody looks to lay blame i don't know at this point from what i know uh, i expect there was a discussion um best military advice was provided um the president as is his right chose to do something different um, I can't imagine that the best military advice was closed Bagram Air Force Base, where we could have done a nice controlled exit and really defended it well. Um, but I don't know. Uh, I wasn't privy to those discussions. Um, but it, I, what I do know is we never should have done it at Kabul Airport, and that was seriously problematic. Um, you know, you see some of the testimony that's going on, and one of the aspects that people get frustrated about is how can you come out? you know, like generals and stuff, and be open about what you told the president. Uh, well, that violates trust between military advisors and the president, the person they're advising. Uh, and one of the things I frequently tell military folks is, not that I'm saying that President Biden got it wrong, but what I frequently talk to uh, military folks is, based on the Constitution, do our civilian elected leaders have the right to be wrong? And the answer to that is absolutely. We provide our best military advice. They make the decision. We carry it out to the best of our ability regardless of our opinions of it. Um, and so when people start thinking about that, they're like, okay, I understand that. And I said, and by the way, we aren't always correct in our advice. So that's the other piece of that because mm-hmm. the considerations that the political leaders taking into account that we may not even be aware of. Uh, and some people may be willfully, willfully ignorant of it too, because they're like, well, that's politics. I don't do that. Well, sorry, everything we do is politics. That's what it's about people. So. Yeah, I appreciate you said that. We've we've had uh, a political scientist on this podcast, and he said the same thing. Everything is politics, uh, yes. and it's it, so. L- let me ask you this: a little bit more of a fundamental question. Do you think it was time for us to get out of there? 
I think it was well past time for us to get out of there. I was just speaking with somebody today, earlier today, and the way I explained it is, you know, if you're looking at a host government, because we have the exact same problem in Vietnam, if you're looking at a host government that is corrupt, inefficient, um, is being out-administered by the enemy, um, and regardless of how many, how much advice you provide, no matter what you do, you, they continue to march along the same lines. Um, there, you know, many of them were corrupt from the opium money that was floating around. And then you are fighting against an insurgency that uh, has a safe haven in a different country that they can reconstitute themselves. Um, you know, they can when the pressure is too much, they can just kind of run there and they're safe. Um, they had plenty of money from um, not only donors, but also from the opium trade. Um, that's a major losing proposition. And really, the only thing keeping us going was the honor of the United States uh, and our image around the world from the standpoint of at what point do you walk away from this? And yeah. when you do, they're probably going to collapse. And then what what does that do to our image around the world? So I think that's what kept us in it for 20 years. And people will think, well, I mean, that's not a good idea. But how many times have people stuck with something personally well past the point where they shouldn't have? And it all came down to, well, it, I'm going to look bad if I walk away from this. Yeah. Yeah. What's that fallacy? That's the fallacy of a sunk cost bias. Uh, you know, we, yeah. We've got all this time and, and effort and, and let's be honest, let's not gloss over the people who lost their lives there. And Absolutely. that's not an, not an easy thing to walk away and say, this is a mess and we know it's going to collapse or we think it's going to collapse. There was a monograph written by a guy named uh, Bob Comer, Robert Comer. His nickname was Blowtorch Bob. It's called Bureaucracy Does Its Thing. Um, he spent two years in the Johnson administration and two years in Vietnam running cords, the civilian development piece of uh, what we we're trying to do there. And the frustrating part about it is because the theme of it is bureaucracies do what they know, not necessarily what's appropriate. And all the same mistakes he was railing about in bureaucracy does his thing, we saw again in Iraq and Afghanistan because you're just like, oh, I don't know that we learned a thing. Yeah, and I, I'm not as probably as much of a history buff as you, but I feel like we we repeated some errors that, that we, we made in, in Vietnam. We did. Um, yeah, so um, maybe it just it's a complex. You know, I, I don't ever want to gloss it over. It's easy to be an armchair quarterback and say, "Well, you know, I can't believe you would make those decisions." When we look at our leaders, and this is something I teach my students is. Let's have some empathy for they're making hard decisions. And, and we I'd like to think they're trying to do the best they can. Are you a Teddy Roosevelt fan? The man I am. I am. Love a lot man of these quotes. Yep. Man in the arena is a good one. If you want to sit on the sidelines, uh, I, I really don't want to hear from you. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's actually coming from Brene Brown. If you're familiar with Brene Brown, she said, uh, oh, she, yeah. goes, she goes, I don't put a lot of stock in, in people that want to criticize me when they're not in the arena with me. Yes. So um, She's that, that might be good advice for us all. Yes. Uh, it's easy to sit on the sidelines and say uh, you're doing it wrong. Let's uh, let's stay with this this idea of leadership. I've interviewed. I've been lucky enough to interview a lot of. I have another podcast that that I do in my my kind of my private time or, or personal time called Forging Metal. We talk, you know, about mental toughness and resilience and grit and those sort of things. And I've interviewed a lot of Navy SEALs, fighter pilots, uh, a lot of people from the military. And I'm always pretty fascinated by. I think the military does leadership quite well. Would you agree with that? Comparatively speaking, uh, like to other walks of life, yes. Um, but within uh, it, service by service, the different emphasis, um, I don't know. I, there's 
some of the service, I'm not overly impressed with how they do leadership, um, their methods of leading their subordinates. Uh, I just, it, but again, it's it's their service. It's their call for how they want to do that. But I feel very strongly about this topic that you just brought up. As a matter of fact, I have a manuscript that uh, I've kind of shopped around to a couple different places. I haven't heard an answer yet. And the title of it is um, The What It Means to Be a Man Speech. And it's from the second movie Secondhand Lions, where Robert, Robert Duvall gives what it, mean, what it means to be a man speech. But the subtitle is How to Be a Better Person. And what it talks about are all these, all the different things like, you know, moral courage, um, you know, the golden rule, um, just you know, these, cause you see young people, cause that's who it's oriented for making a lot of mistakes that if you could just sit down and just get them to listen to you and just talk to them a little bit and, and help them understand some of the facts of life, um, instead of maybe what other people might've told them that just isn't realistic. I think, and, and I don't want to, I don't want to just say this is for young people. I think the young people can benefit from that, but, uh, this old guy that's talking to you, it benefits from it as well. So, I feel like, and this again, this is my opinion, that we're kind of losing our way, and especially with the younger yeah. folks of who do we, who do they follow? You know, a lot of uh, affiliation with you know groups like the Boy Scouts and, and the Girl Scouts is falling off. Religion is falling off. So I think we we have a generation that's a little bit lost of who do we follow and and what is our guidance. Yeah. And so I think folks like you writing books like that can help with that. You know, yeah. maybe help fill that void. I just think social media is a pretty negative factor in all of that because, you know, they're they're generally only talking to people that believe like they do. Um, so yeah. it's an echo chamber, but they're also looking at the highlight reels of other people's lives and comparing it to their own reality, you know, negatively. I mean, there's just so many. And then the electronic isolation of, hold on, put that down. Let's let's have a discussion face to face. Let me, let's, you know, talk person to person. Um, and it, it, that's so immensely powerful and you lose all of that in social media. I'm with you. And I always feel like I'm, I'm that grumpy old guy when I say that, that we need to get face to face with people much more often than we do now. So, uh, but I'm going to stand by it. Uh, and, and it's not to say that I don't use social media myself, but uh, we're not leading our, 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 I don't know, our young people in the right direction with that. Well, you know, part of uh, the mission of this podcast is the Center for Leadership at the University of Colorado. And you are on the board of advisors. Yes. Uh, what brought you to that? Uh, why CU and, and why the Center for Leadership? Well, when I retired from Marine Corps, um, you know, some of the options that you have, especially because I did capability development for the Marine Corps, um, people want you to work for defense contractors where you can make a lot of money. But I, I just don't know there's, for me personally, I don't think there'll be a lot of help, a lot of self-satisfaction doing something like that. Um, what I do get satisfaction from is working with younger folks, trying to help them get off to a good start in life. Um, and when I was starting to retire, I reached out to the University of Colorado. There's a, and our Naval Reserve Officer Training Corps unit there with a Marine colonel in charge. Uh, and he put me in touch with Aaron Roof. And Aaron Roof asked me if I'd like to teach in the leadership uh, program, the capstone leadership studies for the leadership studies minor. So we did that spring semester of 2021 just loved that experience. And then he said, well, would you like to participate in the, the board of directors or board of advisors for the Center for Leadership? And I said, absolutely. I'd like to get more involved, you know, because this is this is what I want to do. Um, and so that's kind of how it uh, grew to what, what I'm doing now, because I'm also teaching at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, uh, critical thinking, uh, and then the art and science of learning. So outstanding. Aaron can be persuasive, can he? He can. He sure can. <laughs> and he's 
Yeah, yeah, he's really into experiential learning, and I think you are as well. What is it that uh, you think people can gain from that? Um, it's easy to sit in a classroom and talk about the aspects of different aspects of leadership, what works and what doesn't work. It's different when you're in, under difficult circumstances and you're asked to lead um, and you have to kind of put aside personal considerations and lead your your peers uh, in particular, like the experience we did because um, he took his, we had to cl- divide the class because of COVID. He took his group to Buena Vista Mountain Adventures. I took mine to Colorado Brown and Leadville. Um, and it was three nights and four days in several feet of snow single digit temperatures, you know, love it, winter, love it. winter camping, some of whom some of the students had never even been camping period, let alone winter camping. Um, and just getting them outside, getting, getting them outside themselves from the standpoint of, yeah, okay, yeah, some of this sucks, but you know what, we can get past this. You can deal with this. Um, and how are you going to lead in these, in this difficult situation uh, and putting them on the spot uh, and then having discussions about things we'd covered in class. Cobbs is great about that. Um, and, and well, this is how it applies. And then the practical application of it by going out and doing it. And the students from everything I saw and read, the students loved it. So that's, that's great. As, as you know, the, the old saying, embrace the suck, right? It, it, yeah. <laughs> you know, sometimes life sucks. And I, and I, I'm assuming you're, you're saying, Hey, we're out here doing this out in the mountains, but this is directly applicable to yes. the storms in, of life that, that come our way and how do we weather those storms. And so, cause also it's about self-knowledge, knowing how far you can push yourself. Sure. What yes. you're capable of. And if you've never tested, you never know. Absolutely. I, I'm a big believer in, in testing ourselves and testing our limits and doing things that we, we never thought we could do. Yes. It's very empowering. And, and I know you know this from, from your background, but it's very empowering and it gives you the confidence to go out and, and take on some big tasks. Absolutely. And uh, that's how we do great things in life, right? And, and we need more of that. We need more great leaders out there doing great things. I always like to say every semester that I start teaching, I say, I tell my students and I, and I say it very authentically, I expect to learn from all of you this semester. So I would throw that at you, Bill. You've had an amazing background and, and certainly a lot of experiences. Are you still learning from the people that you teach? Shame on me if I don't. Good. What, so, so tell me tell me something that you've learned from this, this young generation that, that uh, maybe stuck um, with you. Not surprising at all, but stereotypes don't really apply. Um, that they can be just as devoted, just as dedicated, just as, you know, motivated to get things done when they want to. Um, you know, that's one thing you saw, uh, I saw in the Marine Corps, you know, people always lament, wow, you know, they just don't make Marines like they used to. Okay, well, I did three tours in Iraq with them. Um, they did everything and more. I mean, that was required of them. I mean, it was just amazing to watch. And sometimes I have a hard time talking about it because, wow, they, do, you know, you see at one moment they're playing a video game or, or, you know, doing something that's relatively juvenile. And then next minute they do something so selfish. It just takes your breath away. Um, and they're all capable. Some of them just haven't realized it yet. Um, and when, when you sit down and talk with these folks, the give and take, you know, how smart they are. Um, I mean, it's just, it is so motivating. And that's one of the first things I tell them, you know, in both the Naval Postgraduate School and at the University of Colorado, the one semester I've taught there so far, is, uh, hey, I'm here to learn from you just as much as you are to learn from me. That this discussion that we have, the active learning piece um, is, uh, it's a two-way street, you know, because I'm, I'm also reading another book right now. Somebody uh, gave me, it's called Education for Judgment. And it talks about two different teaching methods. 
the one that is predominant is the, the sage on the stage lecturing and transferring knowledge to the students. And 50% of what gets transferred gets lost within a short amount of time, as opposed to the active learning approach where you involve them, you're having a discussion, you're causing them to think on their feet and respond. Um, that sticks so much more. And I think they get so much more out of it. So I think that's incredibly important. Yeah, I think you're echoing everything I would say. And I appreciate that you say, you know, I think, you know, I've done a lot of work with the millennial generation. And I think, I just really think they get a bad rap. And, and yeah, are there bad millennials? You bet. There's bad from every generation. And I think the millennials get, get picked on a little too much. A lot of my millennial students are incredibly impressive and um, way more than I was at that age. So uh, there's good and bad with with every generation, I think, and and we should uh, maybe let off the millennials a little bit. All well, right, I think some of the some of the people like to bin things in simple ways to understand it or in in their own terms. Sure, and that's where I think a lot of stereotypes come from. Come sure. from because it happens with the military, it happens with you know young folks, it happens with old folks. So it's easy, right? It, it, it's it's, easy. La it's lazy. If I can label you, I don't have to really think hard. So yes. it makes it easy for me. Let's, uh, this has been great, Bill. Uh, I, I feel like I could probably, I don't know if you're a beer drinker, but I could probably sit down and have Man. a beer with you and, and, and talk about this for hours. But as we wrap this up, our signature last question is what's on the frontier of leadership? What do you see that's out there that maybe cu is cutting edge? What can we do better? Or maybe sometimes we get the answer of, uh, we don't need anything cutting edge. We need to go back in history. What would your answer be to that? What's, what's out there? Uh, it's going to echo a lot of what we talked about because it's that learning piece. You can't ever stop learning and casting your net wider and trying to understand the world around you because it's getting more and more challenging to do so with disinformation, fake news, um, deep fakes, um, you know, echo chambers, all the things out there that prevent people from truly understanding the world around them instead of taking the simple path of believing what somebody told them. Um, and so if you, for people to be truly effective, they have to find ways to continue to learn and expand the horizons all the time. It never stops. Um, and, you know, there, I, I see a lot of folks get comfortable, uh, you know, settle and get complacent with where they're at. I'm smart enough. It's not possible. So that's how I look at it. And that's why, because I finish on average four books a week. Um, and that's not to brag, but that's how intense I take this you know, wanting to know more and wanting to keep adding to that toolbox that enables me to make decisions and deal with life around me. Thanks for spending your valuable time with us this week. If you enjoyed today's topics, please leave us a review. This will help us reach new listeners who can benefit from these conversations. We'll see you next time.